to Imperial Class 14. Uh, this week we're joined by Borzoi from TRS. Uh, but before I introduce him, I just want to make a few housekeeping announcements from the you know the guys at Imperial Press. First of all, um, new book just got released a few days ago, Friedrich List's uh, National System of Political Economy. Obviously, it's not a new book. It's the 19th century, but it's a new release. Um, and I'm also going to do one of my video breakdowns, you know, that I customarily do about various political theory texts uh, on it in, over the next few weeks. We're going to read it in our kind of uh, reading group or whatever. So an important text. Uh, so I, I, obviously, a lot of uh, what we do um, in this milieu is, is kind of trying to put together all the components of what in our view is kind of like the heterodox Political theory that kind of serves nationalism and counter, in kind of counterposition to kind of like hegemonic liberal uh, discourse, um, and this uh, is a very key component of that. So it's an important release. Um, and uh, also, Mike uh, and Imperium Press have just launched their own YouTube channel. So there will be a link to that in the description. Um, so go and subscribe to the Imperium Press channel. Obviously, Mike. Um, does more stuff than just this podcast. So launching a channel is going to be good. You can do more different kinds of content uh, you know, related to Imperium Press and otherwise. Um, so make sure you subscribe to that. Hopefully we can grow that channel pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, we might as well get into it. So I guess a logical way to start because probably a large portion of the audience who might not know Borzoi or see him around on Twitter or something but haven't listened to podcasts is I guess for you to Kind of like let the audience know main stuff that you do and that you're into, and then uh, maybe get into some subject matter. I'll keep it brief, and I but I'll try to give the uh, the summation of it all for people who might not be familiar with me. So I'm, I go by Borzoi, uh, with associated with the right stuff. Biz. I have two shows that are pretty irregular over there, but I'm trying to bring them back up to um, back up to a schedule they got the pause button which is basically uh, a cultural analysis of movies and uh, hyper podcastism which was ostensibly supposed to be basically breaking down 20th century phil philosophy books but it's kind of branched out into a larger broader topic kind of conversation on the uh, you know ideas and 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 developments the last 100 150 years uh People can hear me on other shows as well as I tend to fill in quite a bit for people on on the race stuff that biz shows. I used to be on Third Rail quite a bit. Uh, I sometimes fill in on TDS and, and other shows, but uh, primarily you'll find me there. I guess I'm more known for trying to being a book poster. I guess would be the way to break that down. I like I like history. I like ideas, and that's kind of what people know me for. Sometimes I I post a meme now and then. Nice, and also uh, the People Square. That's where I know for you from oh. as well. I should probably, yeah, I should probably, probably shouldn't bear the lead on that one or forget that one. Yes, I am the sometimes co-host, now full-time producer for The People's Square. It was a show I started with Eric Stryker about, I think, three years ago, uh, as he needed somebody who could stream for him. And I was kind of the only person who kind of knew how to do it at the time, and I wasn't very good at it, nor did I have the right hardware for it. So there's been a bunch of uh, bumps along the road, but uh, yeah, I'm... I'm Stryker's co-host and producer for The People's Square, which if people aren't familiar with that show, Stryker 
basically interviews various people from across the different political spectrum talking about history, politics, current events and the like. And if there's nobody else to fill to talk to, then I'll talk to them. People like those episodes, actually. So it's a yeah, good that's time. A great, that's a great show, actually. I really I, that's one of the ones I, I uh, consume regularly. Yeah, you can actually find that on Odyssey. We are full time on Odyssey now. So the people square just look for that on Odyssey and you'll find it. Nice. Yeah, and you guys are gracious uh, enough to have me on there, uh, you know, back in the day as well. So that was uh, that was a an exciting uh, moment for me, actually. That was uh, my wife actually buys every Imperium Press book as soon as it comes out, so I know I'll have a <laughs> I'll soon have a copy of that list book on our on our bookshelf within well probably a week or two here. Nice. I particularly enjoyed the People's Square episode where you spoke about uh, Wang Huling's America Against America. Um, yeah. It's, and speaking of that, there, people who are familiar with my work know that the last hyper podcastism I did was on the first three parts of uh, Wang Huning's America Against America, and then it just stopped and and didn't resume. And for people who may not be familiar with my situation, I recently, my wife and I recently had a child, and it's just been a very, uh, it's it's been a long process of kind of taking care of him, and I was spread too thin across different things. So while I get caught up in pause buttons that people had requested and actually donated for after that, I'm going to finish off America against America. Cause I do think that's a topic worth revisiting. I didn't want to leave it kind of hanging there, but you know, life hits, life comes at you fast. Yeah, I really do. I think a lot of people in the movements seem to have a kind of uh, mental block against China respecting. I just had the, debate with Richard Spencer the other day where, you know, basically I was making the arguments that, um, you know, if we're going to do a Cold War rematch, at this time the Americans will lose because the Chinese system is Syria, frankly. Um, I mean, the Americans could, I mean, like in principle, I guess, radically reform uh, their entire political and economic system and, and win the second Cold War, but I, I, I don't see that as, as a likely outcome. I think the more likely outcome is uh, uh, I guess, like the the West taking an L that it deserves, and hopefully out of that uh, pressure, a, a kind of reorganization of our political structures into something far more sane, functional, and maybe in like Cold War Three, we can uh, win, you know, win the trilogy, I guess, against the East. But um, the uh, you know, the point that, that I was making was not uh, okay. We like you know, let's all um, move to China and like suck off Xi Jinping or something, and uh, you know, bow down before our Chinese overlords because I don't think it's like, basically that's what a cold war is, right? Like you can't, uh, like war can't turn hot fundamentally. There's like nukes pointed in each direction. It's logistically impossible for either, you know, either power to invade one another. So it's kind of like competitive statecraft and competitive political system building. And, uh, you know, one side is basically trying to overpower the other through a very complex, uh, form of pressure that is, different than direct warfare so it's kind of like doomed to repeat itself in a sense um uh, at least until like military tech would somehow you know be innovated in such a way that uh you know one state could actually achieve hegemony which at least from the standpoint of current tech seems kind of unfeasible um who knows maybe the chinese will build some giant ai robot army and enslave us all but uh you know within the paradigm of what currently exists is how I see things. So my points in uh, kind of looking to the Chinese for leadership is to say, well, look, like the West has uh, obviously 
have become decadent. It has uh, incredible structural problems in various ways across the political and economic system. Um, so we should look to a state that's getting some of these things right and, and say, well, look, these guys, are, they're taking W's, relative W's against the West for a reason. They're, they're employing ideas, they're employing techniques of governance in a, in a superior way. And only through respecting them could we develop a discourse that would be humble enough to maybe try and imitate and, and copy them. And frankly, a lot of the best ideas in uh, Chinese politics are kind of copied from the West. Like that was what that was interesting about uh, Wang Hu Ning, is that it's very clear that he highly respected America. He kind of uh, began his career, you know, uh, as an intellectual, you know, reading a lot of like 19th century American intellectuals, early 20th century American intellectuals. And he was expecting when he went to the United States to kind of be, you know, taught how a civilization is supposed to be. Like he kind of looked up to the Americans from afar because uh, he saw their historical greatness. And then he got there and was profoundly disappointed, um, uh, you know, at what America had become. And uh, so in many ways, I would, you can kind of almost see the Chinese as a repository of old, you know, German and American ideas from, a, from our civilization when it was in a healthier form. And so I think kind of an imitation of the Chinese wouldn't be like imitating Confucianism or something, but uh, really a repository of, in my view, of, of many older ideas that we developed in the West that it's a shame that we've fallen away from as opposed to, you know, me saying that they're a superior civilization to us or anything like this. I don't know what you think about that. So I think because there's a lot there you there's a lot you threw out there and i have thoughts on everything you just put in there so let me see if i can if i can synthesize this all briefly well i think to start with you have uh, there's in the course of you know the last few years of all the reading and, and thinking i've done about this like i said my intellectual journey as it were which I, terrible way of phrasing that way but i have two kind of guiding principles the first is that we there's very little we actually know and even what we know is suspect and the second is almost all ideology is a spook because this is a problem i've seen a lot within this milieu is that people get invested in the narratives that they try to develop to make sense of the world and that's that's actually understandable i mean all of us are going to be prone to that you can't help it just especially when you're trying to develop this stuff you, you get a piece of information here you get a piece of information there okay now i got the whole picture but do you really that's something you have to always be asking yourself do you actually are you actually certain that you know what you know and is the information even reliable and so ideology tends to come in as a way to try and smooth those problems over but the fact is is that the way people tend to operate in the world especially leaders is actually very non-ideological for the most part that doesn't mean they aren't taking certain things they see into account but very 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 few leaders or people with power in the world have ever sat down read a book that get, that spells out an entire ideology of how they're going to act in the world so when you take that into account you have to start looking at that and then to what you're saying there about um, America against America. What I've always found interesting about as an American is what other people think about our country and how that comes into into conflict when they actually do experience what life in America is like. And this has been a story that's actually been going on for quite some time. You bring up like how Germans viewed America. I mean, Knut Hamsun had a very 
infamous work, which is where the term mulatto stud farm came from, uh, The Cultural Life of Modern America. He wrote that in the 1880s. And he's coming over as a European hearing all these things about America. And while the industry was impressive, he was just flabbergasted by the culture of this place. And you can actually see echoes of that in in Wang Hunin's book, America Against America, because what a, the way a country presents itself, or at least the image that is transmitted to other countries, rarely matches up nicely with the with the lived reality there. Um, it's it is funny how how countries have always admired America because of what seemed to be the promise there. And if you look at, for example, Korea in the Korean language, the name for America is Miguk, which means beautiful land beautiful country. That's what the what the actual what the name for our country is. And I've talked to a lot of Koreans there and the conceptions they they have of it is not just beautiful in the sense of like the landscape, but beautiful in the sense of the people. They think the people are beautiful. And you see this actually in a lot of Asian media as well, the way that they depict um, or depict Americans. They tend to be like giant, like six foot giants, blonde hair, very strapping. I'd even talk spoken with uh, or at least I had a translator translate for me, but I had spoken with old Korean women who had been around during the Korean War, and that's how they described the Americans: is that they were they were very large, very handsome, strapping men. And when you get when it's very hard to get a complete picture even of your own country until you hear it from other people, especially ones that may have become disillusioned with the media projected image, because some of that stuff echoes back to us that that conception of like the beautiful country, the strapping people, the beautiful people, all that. And that's what I found very interesting about America against America, because you had somebody who got all the messaging that all the, the rest of the world got about America. And he comes there and he doesn't know what to make of it. And that's an experience you'll have in any country you go to when you have when you have these certain conceptions you've built up about a country and then you actually go to it. I mean, that's part of the culture clash, but he saw some very deep seated problems and rot. And if you're from another country and you see this in America, this is one of the biggest global superpower. I mean, you're going to immediately wonder, is that going to be exported to us? Because it's clear to see the pattern that America has a tremendous influence across the world and it's going to export that. Does that mean the rot also gets exported? I mean, I think the results speak for themselves. I would argue yes, but that's something if you're studying America as an example, you have to take that into account. So Wang Hunin is looking at this and he this is the other great aspect of having a foreigner look at your own look at your country because he's picking out examples of stuff of like planned communities because the a lot some people might know this, some people might not, but I mean because of the promise that America seemed to have in its early days, you had people come over from Europe to create planned utopian communities. Almost all of them failed. I mean, that's just the, how it went. But that's a, it's a very unique thing about this country that we kind of take for granted that there were all these utopian schemes and planned communities that were started by people because this was the land to do it in. And Wang Hunin, I forget what the – it's been a long time since I've I've read the first three parts of his book – but he cites one of these examples and how it basically broke down. It's kind of a microcosm of it all. In fact, actually, which you can connect to false and why I say ideology, almost all ideology is a spook, is that essentially 
um, what the Italian school of elitism says just keeps bearing out. It's that, you know, there's an iron law of oligarchy that no matter what an, uh, an elite is always going to form, an oligarchy is always going to form. And all you can really do with that is how do you make it so that people on the bottom are able to still benefit or make it so that the the elites and the oligarchs have an actual virtuous and uh, and uh, a virtuous at least some aspect of a virtuous character to them. I mean, this problem is as old as time. I mean, play. I mean, the very the very first like real philosophical text we have, the the Republic, basically talks about this problem. So these are these are problems that have been around since antiquity. They are well. It's when you look at this thing and abandon your ideology, you understand like. It's just the, the same thing recurs each time in a different form. And that's why it's interesting to look at China because Wang Huning, if people don't know who that is because we've thrown that name out numerous times, he's he's a scholar over there in China who is kind of considered to be one of the people who's influencing Xi, what's called Xi Jinping thought, the, the ruling philosophy that's currently guiding China or ostensibly so. And what I see from it is basically how do we build a – how do we build an elite – that can withstand what America is exporting. And that's what he's digging into when he looks into, when he goes to America and sees the problems there, because if America is going to export everything it has, it's going to export that. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's, it's good to bring in the Italian elite theorists here because you know what they're doing and what Machiavelli is taken to be doing is basically trying to turn these things into uh, a kind of science that's value-free, and I mean, there's obviously problems with that. The idea of value-free anything is is kind of itself a bit of a spook. Um, but they're doing something very interesting here. Uh, I, you know, I, th I I like the 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 phrase ideology as a spook because what this kind of tells me is something that is very intuitive, which is that basically. All beliefs are luxury beliefs, um, and I think we can kind of fold that into something that that I have been calling propositionality. And this is, uh, you know, th think of that in terms of the idea of the proposition nation. That what what America is fundamentally is an idea, um, and you know, the the idea of propositional identity is is a very very weak identity uh, to begin with. The idea that you are what you believe. I mean, the fact is that people are generally non-ideological, like when the mm -hmm. rubber hits the road and, um, you know, I mean, people can believe anything. I mean, if the last two years have taught us anything at all, it's that it's that people can it does like their beliefs are, can be molded and shaped pretty easily um, until un unless and until they get hungry. And then when people's, you know, stomachs are not full anymore and their wallet is empty and their soft cushion and their Xbox has been taken away. <clears throat> that's when the, the, you know, things start to come into focus and, and the reality of the situation starts to become clear, um, that ideas are downstream of other stronger and kind of older forms of identity that are often biological and, and sometimes inherited from like, you know, deep psychology of evolution. Um, but basically, our categories are kind of received. Uh, you know, I think we should view this as a kind of command rather than as a propositional 
view of the world. So your con- your concepts, like an example, might be, um, you know, there's like a tribe in Africa that has, uh, you know, like dozens of different like n- names for the color green, and they consider them all to be different colors. Um, this is you know, their their concepts, their received concepts are different than ours. And these concepts are basically commands to notice this, uh, to take this and not that as a thing. So, um, you know, I, I think this ideolo- idea that ideology is a spook, which I think people take very seriously and this isn't really intuitive to us, can kind of give us the tools to uh, combat propositional identity, which is something that's that is is really killing us because the fact is that we as a people, as you know, the European diaspora, are some of the only people in the world that that really cling very tenaciously to the the idea that, you know, we are what we believe, you know, you're an American because you hold these truths to be self evident or whatever, rather than as a coherent in group that is essentially dictated by biology and by received history. You know, uh, it's no accident that Northwestern Europeans are are the people who, uh, you know, have basically tried to hit the reset button and have the year zero ideology that is seems to keep coming up over and over again in our history. So, um, yeah, that's I just wanted to kind of raise that uh, about the idea of ideology It's really something that we, we can't quite escape, but that we really have to try. I mean, it's it's there as a guiding principle, like say, if your ideology has a, a racial component, for instance, that's, you will incorporate a, that racial identity into the way that you act. But it's, it's one of those things that's, as I said, it's a, it's a guiding principle. The fact, the idea though, that people act based upon ideology is a little bit silly when you actually think about the way the world actually operates and the what and what drives people to do what they're going to do. It's it's why when you look at like, liberalism is actually kind of like the perfect encapsulation of that, which is why the Italian school of elite, uh, the elite uh, Italian school of elitism is actually very revelatory if you're not familiar with their concepts because they they analyzed liberalism from a very mechanical, you know, engineering type standpoint of like, well, what's the actual results that manifest when you develop a liberal system? No matter what happens, no matter what, no matter what form of liberalism you create, a oligarchy still emerges, and it, and it always, especially emerges within liberal countries. It's actually built into it, even though the ideology seems to be ostensibly stated to be against having an oligarchy and having elites. That's because ideology, you cannot make people follow, like you cannot engineer people to follow the ideology. The ideology follows how people act. But sorry, Joel, you were about to say something. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you bring up the Italian school of elitism. I think the best work that they've produced is Michelle's political parties. I mean, I made a video on my YouTube channel about that text. I think it's uh, integral. Um, I don't rate Pareto um, anywhere near as highly as as that text. I think it's a little bit of a dog's dinner. Pareto's model that has uh, been superseded by subsequent theorists. But... The insights of Michelle's, I think, are just as relevant today as they were when he wrote them. Because Michelle's, unlike the others, I mean, Pareto and Mosca are kind of coming from more of a liberal, reactionary, conservative kind of mentality, whereas Michelle's was a socialist. Um, I mean, obviously, he ended up joining the fascist party um, later, but I mean, he wrote that text 
you know, 10, like over, to, over a decade before the March on Rome. And he was basically trying to work out, like, uh, how come socialism isn't working uh, as, a, as a sociological question. Um, and so he put socialism up to like analysis because obviously the socialists say, well, their critique of liberalism is, well, you know, the conservative elements uh, within liberalism, they, you know, they're basically trying to protect the interests of capital. Uh, the bourgeois have just kind of replaced um, the aristocracy uh, and they disempower labor. So we need to, instead of like, you know, having a political party that takes donations from well-moneyed interests um, and, you know, going along with what, you know, corporate media is telling us to do, um, we're instead going to kind of, you know, draw from the working class uh, our own political party, um, like, you know, through like trade unionism and so forth. And like, you know, we can build a political class. Because like the Marxist theory was supposed to be that, you know, you have a progressive view of history. So insofar, the, the, the bourgeoisie are able to kind of take over from feudalism because in the process of setting up um, industrial production, um, they develop, you know, not, not just like they don't just receive income, but they like develop their own specific class consciousness and they develop their own method of organization. They have like you know, all this like you know business infrastructure, so then they can use that uh, organization to then enter politics. Um, and and like that's the kind of the whole point of Michel's is that like politics, you know, he rejects the liberal view that you get with you know liberal sociologists so that like basically politics is an expression of consensus that you just have a bunch of individual nodes in the system and as their like ideas shift kind of like a kind of like a macro like, kind of like a micro view that we just have all these individual subjects and as their views shift it's like you know they then get assembled into like new political views um no like politics works through organized groups it doesn't work through mm -hmm. some middle of the of individuals like the organization is more than the sum of its parts always so Marx's whole theory was supposed to be that, well, in the process of setting up uh, industrial production, and, and uh, as industrial production complexifies, um, the you know the, the workers, they're going to have to kind of uh, you know develop more and more complex organizations to manage production. So they have to build like basically a managerial uh, managerial labor becomes a thing. Um, so. Because obviously, if you're a manager of a corporation, you don't, you don't, you're not a capitalist. If you don't actually own um, the company necessarily, I mean, maybe you do have stock, but but generally speaking, this is what happens. And, and Veblen's theory um, builds upon this even more, where he points out um, this kind of distinction between like the managers of industry and the you know the ownership class, like the owners of business, and that they end up becoming like two rival modes of organization in society that will kind of keep. Like, Political and economic control. Um, so that Marx's theory was that you know basically that capitalism was a progressive force of history, but bringing us into you know industrial society, and then the kind of industrial reorganization of society would produce a managerial uh, class that become experts in the management of men, and they will like gradually um, get to the point where they have the capacity to take over society from these elements, um, and so. Anyway, so Michel's is really kind of taking this seriously and saying, but he's kind of critically analyzing it and saying, well, what happens when the socialist movement develops its managerial class? 
um, the managers that it raises, like themselves, uh, form a kind of different class interest. Like they're no longer just the same as the other workers. They um, become, uh, you know, uh, petty bourgeois elements, essentially, according to Michelle's in, in the social structure. Because basically, if you want to run a political party, it's really complicated. So the average worker who pays their dues to their union or, or you know, that you know, the rank and file member of the party. Um, they don't really know what's going on um, because they're, you know, they're workers. They're, they're, their day is spent, you know, doing their job. Um, so what happens is that from the proletariat, a new class is raised, which is no longer proletariat, that becomes specialists in the technical management of politics, basically. And so basically what you get is, is a kind of managerial class that is distinct from the workers, where previously, you know, the kind of Marxist idea was that, like, like the management of labor could, like basically labor could eventually manage itself. That was supposed to be the dream of socialism. Michel's critically analyzes that and says, well, no, the management of labor itself creates a, a kind of distinction. Um, it's not the same as the bourgeois proletarian distinction, but nevertheless remains a class distinction. And obviously he was going to prove it right by the 20th century and how like when socialism was to practice in the Soviet Union or whatever, you have uh, what many Marxists call state capitalism, where essentially the, the production is managed by the party, um, not by the workers themselves, in a direct sense. So it's very interesting that Michel ended up becoming a fascist uh, as a result of this, obviously fascism being a mutation of Marxism, but like as you were saying before, I think it was very deceptive. The whole crux of the issue is that we're always going to have uh, people in charge. Uh, it's just a technical necessity. And as society gets more complex, even more so, the question is, how do we make them virtuous? And how, yeah. how do we ensure we have a virtuous elite as opposed to an unvirtuous elite? And um, and uh, that's why I praise uh, the Chinese, even though obviously not that like, China's some utopia or it doesn't have social problems, because they have a managerial elite um, that has basically... Put it, 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 it's in charge of the country. Like the party in China, uh, the Communist Party is so strong, it penetrates every institution, um, that it's completely autonomous in a sense. I mean, obviously, it's not fully autonomous. There's like forces of nature, there's the structural realities of the world. But in, a, in an essential sense, it is completely dominant. And so the capacity for the people or you know, the citizenry, the civil society uh, of, of China to identify with this managerial elite and vice versa is, I think, a lot more possible because ultimately, um, you know, Mike was kind of criticizing the ideology. I get what he's saying when it comes to liberalism, but uh, if you're going to have a complex organization you know, run the society, they need to have some kind of ethos. They need to have principles, um, even though those principles are going to necessarily be pragmatic um, they need to have you know, governing principles, and what Chinese have developed is essentially you know principles for managing society that are you know um, that facilitate an identification with uh, you know a kind of majoritarian Chinese identity and a sense of acting in the national interest. And my criticism of our society is we don't have that whatsoever. Liberalism is the precise opposite. It's about minority interests. It's about um, the class interests of like a kind of financial oligarchy that basically enters into a kind of coalition with minority interests against the majority, against any kind of hegemonic identification of the people and their governments. Um, and so we lack, uh, you know, as the kind of uh, 
with the kind of majority identities of countries like Australia or the United States or other Western countries, we, we, we don't have a virtuous oligarchy that actually sees themselves as, uh, as representing us as a, as a collective body. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, that, but. Oh, no, go ahead, wrap your point, because there's a lot I want to address there. I just, I just actually typed it all out so that I could I make sure I keep all my thoughts straight. But I want you to wrap up your point there. Yeah, like the, the final aspect is that what basically I have some issues with Hegel's metaphysics, but Hegel's political philosophy I respect a lot. And Hegel basically made the point that Hegel, um, you know, the state is the actualization of the ethical idea. So morality has a project in history, a kind of progressive project that needs to be realized through, um, you know, politics working itself out through history and development. Um, and so that means that um, we need to participate in the actualization of morality. It's not just like pre-given in, in the abstract, but it has to be made concrete. And so for Hegel, the way in which this is possible is through the development of a truly civic consciousness of a sense that not just wanting my personal good, not, not just entering politics and going, well, what's best for me or what's best for my particular kind of social class or something, but to develop a kind of, you know, collective civic, to identify with the nation, basically, have a kind of uh, strong collective identity, and, and then to try and apply reason to its interests and to, and to its project in history. And, I mean, to me, this seems to be like the goal of, of the political then. And, and, that's, and that's where I think, you know, managerialism in the Chinese model seems to be a lot closer to achieving that than uh, what the West has become. So there's a lot there, and I, and I actually want to address most of that, so I'm going to try to, to break this down a little bit. So for people, because I know with some of my listeners, uh, I tend to break, try to break things down into analogies for them. So kind of give like an overly simplistic analogy here in terms of like this of this managerial stuff we're talking about. I mean, you can Im- imagine you have a, a widget, you know, a widget company, a company that produces widgets. And it was started by a guy who doesn't really understand. He had He had a vision for what the widgets were and we're going to do, but he doesn't actually know the technical aspects of managing the, uh, the, the entire um, information technology aspect of creating those widgets. And so he's got a team of workers who do are specialized in that, but they need to be managed by people who can understand how that how the uh, how the inner workings of it work. It can also do deal with the entire structure of the company over time, especially if, if those people who are man who are man, because what, what ends up happening is those people who have access to the tools of that creation and to the tools of, of creating those widgets, they're going to basically be, they effectively can control the entire company if they choose to basically wield that power against an owner who does not actually have the capability of that. And that's in a microcosm, how you see the more bureaucratic aspects of any kind of structure, especially a political system, begin to rise as a state expands and needs a bureaucratic system in order to manage all that. Well, the people who understand the inner workings are going to, over time, have have power over that. And you you see throughout history, in any in any type of state structure, you have bureaucratic revolts, and they have varying degrees of success in terms of 
of if they can basically throw off who's going to be the head of the of that of the company or the state in the ottoman empire in the 19th century you had what was called the auspicious incident where the janissary class who had originally been a military class but over the centuries had basically evolved into a privileged bureaucratic class they weren't doing much by the end of their lifespan they weren't really doing much of the fighting anymore because the ottoman empire had developed an actual, you know, a, a more robust military, basically a more robust, more modernized military. So the Janissaries had become more bureaucratic. They attempted to revolt against the the Sultan because their privileges were now being threatened by the reforms the Ottoman Empire was attempting to institute in order to save the empire. Their revolt it failed, and basically, they they were liquidated as a class. Uh, the, the Janissaries were no more throughout the rest of the 19th century and, until the end of the Ottoman Empire's reign. Uh, by contrast, I mean, it's, this is a much more minor example, but Donald Trump as president, whatever you might think of what he was, whatever he was actually trying to achieve or whatever you might think of him, he suffered a bureaucratic revolt within the United States government. They succeeded. And you can find all kinds of examples where the where the bureaucratic managerial class will revolt against the against leader. You can you can see liberalism as you were just explaining there as basically this this much broader picture historical phenomenon of the managerial class of feudalism, the emerging managerial class basically overthrowing the aristocracy and becoming the leaders of becoming their leaders and I mean becoming the leaders of these new societies. Um, Burnham, since we're talking about the Italian school of of, elite, uh, of elitism, James Burnham is kind of the most well-known writer on the managerial revolution within the United States. He wrote his he wrote another book though that's not as well known unless you're like really into Burnham, called the Machiavellians, and he was writing this from the perspective of of the Machi of what he called the Machiavellians being the defenders of freedom. Basically, how you can have these liberal elites that are the the managers and defenders of freedom, and he analyzed all three members of the Italian school of elitism. But another figure he analyzed, which is relevant to this discussion, is George Sorel. And for people who may not be familiar, George Sorel, he was a he was a French engineer who became a political thinker. He's actually got a, a lot of similarities with the Italian school, and came to very actually... similar conclusions. He's even deeper than any of them, but um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, go on. Yeah. So he, I mean, he was a Marxist himself, and then he, he would, if you want to classify him, he basically became a post-Marxist because he lived through when the when the socialists in France were able to actually achieve some modicum of political power, and to the point that they eventually did become the ruling party. He realized, like, uh, okay, they they won through parliamentarism, but they're not doing any socialism and this is, seems to be actually going against some of and, and some of the stuff they were doing in the way that they that the party was behaving seemed to go in contrast to the to what Marx was predicting that it was it seemed to be impossible to maintain any kind of revolutionary fervor within the socialists he had a huge bone to pick with uh, Jarez who was the the I think he was the prime minister I can't remember if he was I think president or prime minister I think he was prime minister though because France has like a weird had a weird system and actually always has had a weird system, but he was the, the probably the most well known socialist leader in France until he was assassinated right at the start of World War One. But he had a bone to pick with Jarez because Jarez was adept at doing politics, and that's all he did though was politics. Despite the amount of power this figure had accrued, he 
was not doing anything for the socialist cause. And so because basically socialism had la- and France had lapsed into just it, it exists for its own sake, which is the problem you always have in structures. They begin to exist for their own sake to perpetuate themselves. They develop their own life, and so therefore they're going to do whatever it takes to you know to keep themselves going. That's where ideology basically bleeds away. Sorel's idea basically became like if you don't have a if you do not have an animating myth of any kind, your cause is just doomed to failure. Because what he what he saw in all mass movements is that they are motivated by a myth. It doesn't matter what the actual veracity, truthfulness, his, you know, what, none of that actually matters as long as the, it ha- and this goes with kind of with Gustave Le Bon's idea of, of the crowd as well. If there's nothing to motivate those masses, you cannot. There's nothing you can do with that mass because the oligarchs, the managerial class, will always prevail over them. And he had some quote in Reflections on on Violence, where basically that the idea of that of barbarism uh, being capable of saving the world. And that kind of ties into what, I'm th- what we're talking about here, because the problem when you compare Russia and China and the, the situation we're in, you do actually see two different situations at hand because you have the pre-existing structure in Russia and China. And so what they're dealing with, and you is then you see this with the rise of Putin and the rise of Xi Jinping is that they inherited a pre-existing structure and they were they were structures that were beginning to experience the creep of liberalism and its influences into their structures and they as their own managerial elite wanted to prevent that because that's the thing there's always going to be a managerial elite but you want to be a you want to be an elite who's able to put his ideas forward not be subservient to some other forces ideas. And that's essentially what you see in Russia and China. But how do you do that when you are basically declassé and completely powerless in the West like like we are? Well, that's where I think the idea uh, the ideas of Sorel have a lot of relevance and stuff to really consider there because there's going to you basically need a barbaric element, a revolutionary barbaric element that can puncture the structure because I don't think you can ascend into these managerial elite structures without being just turned into one of them. That's the power of liberalism. It assimilates you into them. You can't assimilate it into you. It just doesn't work that way. Like you, every thinker who has attempted to basically uh, confront the problem of liberalism has noticed this, the way that it just assimilates everything. Schmidt talked and it mentions it as well in his works. So what you kind of need is you need a motivating myth and it might be some it's probably going to be some combination of a of a spiritual one a racial one and an economic one the these three things synthesize together in a kind of new barbarian of the age to have any hope of puncturing this structure russia and china are interesting to look at from their perspective because they had pre-existing structures that while were they were being corrupted they still pre-existed so those structures were always going to perpetuate themselves we don't have that luxury so that's kind of the problem we're in and unless you have a way of unless you have a way of convincing elites to agree with us uh that's uh that's the that you're not going to be able to get around this problem i mean i think if i'm being charitable if i'm not being uncharitable i mean that's kind of what nrx's ideas were it's like well, let's convince the elites to agree with us and i don't think that's a path forward for us 
No, definitely uh, not. I'm glad that you brought up Sorel, though, because I think that the the idea of the myth is, is something that we need to take seriously. But just to kind of put a, a kind of, um, you know, a period on the uh, Italian elite school, I mean, it keeps coming up in relation to China, not just because China presides over a principled bureaucracy. I mean, China's manager- managerialism is principled, but China's principles are inherently historicist, which is, you know, in a sense, not really a principle. It's more of like a heuristic. I mean, the Chinese are not very propositional people, but they are historicist, like to a very large degree. And actually, the Italian elite theorists are historicists, too. What they do is they basically take history before theory. They look at it and they say, well, what are the results? How did this actually play out in uh, in real life? And we can fold this into Friedrich List because this is exactly what he does. I mean, the whole first book of National System of Political Economy is List taking cases from history and looking at how they work. Um, which is inherently, I would say, I mean, the idea of something being non-ideological is kind of, uh, again, it's, it's a bit of a spook. Uh, it, it's not quite value-free. A better term for non-ideological, uh, like the uh, histor- the Italian elite theorists, would be historicist. And this is exactly what China is doing right now. And it's no a- accident that they're like Listian in their economics. China views their whole civilization in historical terms. Like you think of, you know, from 1850 to about 1950, what, what they call the century of humiliation. This is their animating myth, right? China is taking their own side because they got fucked really hard by the West. It's, it's, it's as simple as that, right? This is where the developmental nationalism comes from. Um, and where their managerialism, that's what animates their managerialism and why they, why they care about results over ideology is because of something pre-ideological that they, they got fucked and it, and it still hurts. Right. So they've copied American techniques of governments, governance, like they've taken principles of, uh, you know, developmental nationalism and, uh, economic, uh, nationalism, you know, protectionism of Friedrich List. They've they've taken on the uh, the lessons of the Italian school and James Burnham's managerialism, but they've also uh, combined that with something else. They they are uh, very consciously combining that with Confucianism. And again, this kind of comes back to the Aboriginal ideology of the society, right? Com- Confucianism is itself inherently historicist. All Confucius did was basically point back to the Zhou dynasty and say, like, that's what we need to do again, right? Um, Confucianism is also itself very managerial. I mean, Confucianism is, uh, you know, the Confucian bureaucracy are almost, a, you know, a, a redundant term, right? Um, and this, this combination of historicist philosophy and an Aboriginal worldview is extremely potent, and so no no wonder they're winning, right? Like Chinese democracy is something a little bit different because it's it's Chinese, it's not Western democracy. I mean, these days you've got China and Russia making claims to define democracy in their own way. Uh, just very recently, that they, they put out a joint statement, the two countries saying that exactly. Basically, the West doesn't get to t- tell us what democracy is anymore. So if democracy is, in a very general sense, the identity of the ruled with the rulers, I mean, this is achieved through pointing ostensibly back to uh, the society's own aboriginal ideology, its own sort of blood and soil native ideology. And the identity of the managerial class with the, they say, the peasant class 
is achieved by saying we was Confucians, right? Like all of us. <laughs> that is our native ideology. It was born on our soil. We are all the heirs to it. And there's something inherently corporativist in this. And and here's where it ties in with Sorel, is that what Sorel is basically saying is that, that you know, Without an animating myth, the masses are basically sort of like just dead mass that can't be moved or you know done anything with at all. And I think that the myth that is required, or at least taking China as an example, the myth that they have basically um, excavated is a historical myth, a myth of who we were and who we always will be from the beginning of time to the end of time. I mean, China is the probably the last great autochthonous civilization, you know, the, the one that is essentially the same as it was in the Bronze Age. And this is part of what makes them so powerful and so cohesive as an ethnicity. There's actually um, yeah, a that's... passage. If you... Oh, go, go ahead, Joel. Yeah, I, you did want to say something for a second there. Go ahead. Well, it's, I mean, you mentioned as well, uh, Borzai, that the influence of Schmidt in, on, on Wan Huning and uh, in China, in, other theorists in China. And that's very important because... Uh, Schmidt's crisis of parliamentary democracy, he, he makes the point that there is a fundamental contradiction between democracy and liberalism, because liberalism is fundamentally, um, its essence, uh, in terms of its principles, is to have a procedure where minority interests um, essentially compete and negotiate uh, like an, an arrangement, whereas democracy fundamentally is about a system in which a majority identifies uh, with the collective will, the general will. He sees in Rousseau that you know, Rousseau obviously is a progenitor of both the social contract and the general will. For Schmidt, these two forces are uneasy bedfellows. So the idea of a social contract presupposes individual wills. Um, you know, if you go back to like, like a Hobbesian analysis, there are these like divergent individual wills and they all have to kind of make sacrifices uh, and compromise uh, to establish some kind of procedural method and erect an authority that can uh, mutually, can mutually limit them and hold them into that contract. Whereas general will is something that it instead uh, is a kind of collective animating force um, that like you would have to, uh, for Rousseau, if you're thinking in terms of your private will, you're mistaken. The general will is not the mere assembly of private wills. The general will is like I was saying before about Hegel. It's, it's about uh, a kind of it's, it's a production of civic consciousness, thinking in terms of what's the best for uh, what is in the interest of uh, the collective, uh, the totality, as opposed to the individual, some subset. And so, it's interesting when you look about Chinese democracy. Um, you know, in, if you look at opinion polls in China, um, the government is approved of by its people, by a supermajority of its people. Um, far, far. <laughs> far, far more uh, popular than the United States uh, and its government. Uh, even uh, Vladimir Putin, I think Stryker posted this on Telegram the other day, like Vladimir Putin in the opinion polls right now, uh, because obviously Americans, uh, American media is saying that he's a brutal dictator and the Russian people are about to overthrow him for being so evil and all this bullshit. But in the opinion polls in, in Russia, he has a, like a 71% approval rating, which is like double Joe Biden. So, which is the real democracy? Um, and uh, I think the, the the kind of Chinese in particular have a claim that they are the real democracy and the West are fake democracies. And I know you said before, you know, iron um, law of oligarchy and all this. I think um, this kind of, you know, enlightened managerialism, this is kind of how you, you have a 
virtuous uh, uh, managerialism, what, mean, what that means, is, as Mike astutely pointed out, is that you get a consciousness of history because that the managers aren't acting on their particular class interests of they're like some kind of desire to dominate their society or something as 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 like a class of managers, um, but instead they are trying to actively um, in, like kind of participate in the historical realization of of this of a kind of civilizational project, um, and so that's something that everyone can kind of buy into, uh, from the top and the bottom, and the, and the, and the kind of leaders uh, can can kind of teach and show their people how to buy into it. Like, to participate in like defining a people to themselves you know, there's been a revival of you know confucianism and a revival of uh, various ideas in chinese society um seemingly intentionally uh, wang huning being a, a you know one of these guys so in this kind of resistance to uh, liberalizing forces whereas what you see in the west with, with liberalism is, is a completely ahistorical consciousness you look at like uh, neoclassical economics no interest in economic history um, no interest in uh, uh, like there's a complete lack of interest in um, sociology in, in sociological history. Instead, what you have is this kind of retrojection of like liberal values based upon like abstract relations uh, between within thought experiments back upon the past. And we just, the entire everyone in the all for all of human history, we're all evil racists, misogynists, except like us in the last fifteen years or something. Um, and so there's absolutely zero respect for like who we are and where we've come from. And so it's no surprise that there's no real identification with our political leadership and some like grand historical process that we can all buy into. Um, instead, it's uh, like Western political discourse is, is just, uh, you know, weird like political point scoring and being like whatever the latest media hype cycle is, you know, whether it's like COVID or Ukraine or whatever. It just becomes like a kind of simulation of uh, of, an, of a kind of ethical problem, but not like a real, bona fide, uh, profound historical identity trying to realize a complex project. Yeah, and in the context of China, it's I'm going I'm going to make this very clear here that I am not defending the Cultural Revolution. I'm just dispassionately looking at its long term effects. the The Chinese cohesiveness owes a lot of owes a lot to basically the general cultural isolation of of the Chinese, but also the cultural revolution because of the pruning effect it had on Chinese society. Because you look at China from the from the um, the century of humiliation up through its Republic days, and then the dissolution then and into the uh, the communists, uh, the the Mao state, the communist state, whatever you want to call it, they constantly had the, the relationship of uh, of China with the outside world was one of being basically picked at sliced up influenced corrupted whatever I mean every which way I mean that's that, that was essentially what drove the Japanese to try and assert their own sovereignty and independence as well and unfortunately for them they they were on a side that lost a, a great war so that's uh they are now under the same effects that had happened to the Chinese uh, more than a century before. But the reason why I bring all this up is that you have the Chinese being able to retain their historiosity and their sense of self through the just through the effects of what had happened 
in the last 100 and 150 years. Uh, the you know, the online punditry, and I include our milieu in this, I mean, we're constantly chattering about what is to be done. How do, how do we reach these people? How do we motivate them? How do we get them on our side? It's the how to motivate the masses and how and what's the myth that we give them to to animate them has been no source of, cons, you know, it's been no and it's been an endless source of consternation and frustration for our people in terms of how do we how do we what do we work with you? And honestly, what I'm going to say is that it, and this is, I guess, what my motivating myth is, is that it's the necessity of the of the United States to lose its entire legitimacy because you're not going to, I'm, I, for Europeans, I can't speak for, for them. I've always kind of stressed this, that the European experience at this point in time is a little bit different from ours, especially because they are under, most of them are under the, the United States uh, umbrella of influence now, uh, but for for Americans, for for us who don't do not have any power or any real representation in our own land, this is uh, this is something we've we've struggled with. But the fact is, is that a lot of a lot of our fellow Americans just still have no matter how what the polls say about how much they dislike the government and all that, they still have they still are motivated by the myth of America, and as long as that myth continues to be able to ostensibly put points on the board you're not going unless you, you want to believe you can co-opt the united states government as it is you're not going to be able to sway them from that so i think the united states just has to lose it has to lose at so many levels for there to be any shot of having any kind of influence and this was something i wanted to, to bring up as well in terms of of how these myths gain fire i just recently finished uh, istanbul by Thomas Madden. It's it's a nice general history of the entire city from Byzantium to Constantinople to Istanbul. But he has uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I think it's well worth worth reading here. The West had much to offer the city of Constantinople, but also much to threaten its empire. This is the Ottoman Empire days. In Europe, the days of multi-ethnic empires were passing away, born of the French Revolution and fueled by new technologies such as the railroad and the telegraph. The ideology of nationalism had set fire to the West. It was all the more potent because it was not an invented philosophy, but had grown organically from the new circumstances of the modern world. In pre-modern societies, the average person would live his entire life without leaving the locality of his birth. Thus, he identified with his local clans, associations, and cults. The only thing binding him to the wider world was his religion, and even that was practiced locally. The development of railroads and other means of instant communication changed that. As common people began to travel or spoke to those who had, they discovered that there were people in the world who were not like them, people with very different customs and languages. And some of those people were their rulers. The French, bound together in their great national experiment after 1789, were the first to burn with the zeal of nationalism. They unwittingly brought those flames to other national groups along with their conquering armies. There was, as it happened, no better way to teach Italians about what they had in common than to garrison their cities with French troops. Nationalism became the most powerful dynamic in the course of modern Western history and remains so today. It is, however, toxic to old-style multi-ethnic empires. Habsburg, Austria would be shattered by it. Vienna, though, had a strong economy and modern armies with which to fight back. Constantinople did not. For the Ottoman Empire, nationalism first took root in the Western Balkans, where French soldiers had come after their extermination of the Republic of Venice. 
The Serbs were the first to band together in a determined effort to win independence from their Turkish overlords. Between 1804 and 1815, Serbian fighters with Russian support managed to neutralize the Ottoman provincial government and form their own autonomous principality based in Belgrade. And I found that passage because you don't normally you you hear stuff about um, well what I find interesting here is that he basically indirectly repudiates the reactionary charge that nationalism is inherently a liberal phenomenon because he asserts it develops organically and so while he points to the French Revolution breeding fire into it I read that as the result of revolution and technological progress and not because of liberalism because as the as the expansion of the uh, as the world expands that a person knows it causes their sense of self to become more sharply defined and when you when you no longer have an institution that you or and and the myth of that institution that you can be have any hope for like such in the sense of like the italians having the french constantly garrisoned in their cities it starts to give you a a, a different picture of how you have to define yourself and a new myth you have to develop and for a lot of europeans that was the myth of nationalism and that for them was able to be grown organically for Americans, uh, I think we might have to be reduced back to the kind of the barbarian, you know, the Aryan barbarian core. But it's un there's no sense, I think, in us of being able to kind of co-opt these these institutions unless they take they take a couple really serious black eyes. Because yeah, they need like, the the, 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 the myth of just to finish the myth of their inevitability has to be shattered. But one, yeah. one quick talking point that I thought was kind of funny, too, is that if we get our ass handed to us in Cold War II by the, by the East and our economies, like, totally get crippled and crash, but maybe all the brown people might move back to the East, you know, for, like, economic reasons. <laughs> like, they're, they're like, what does we immigrate back the other direction? Because it's like, oh, this place sucks now. <laughs> they're all destitute. It's essentially what kept, it kept it's what kept a lot of brown people out of Eastern Europe. Now, I mean, like obviously you can't. It's not going to be like 100 percent, but I mean, the lack of uh, prosperity in a lot in a lot of the East is what prevented a lot of the migration patterns out there. Well, so that's getting our ass handed. And, and railroads in Africa, then you know maybe, <laughs> and and Europe goes to shit, then maybe the whole <laughs> just move back because they you know need to find work and. I mean, I don't think that they necessarily. I mean, I don't think that they're really leaving for any other reason other than economics, surely. I mean, well, there uh, was that uh, guy, right? Uh, like in Ukraine recently, there was. Well, there's this video of like a black guy who's, um, you know, he's emigrating. He's leaving. He's, Ukraine. I am. Yeah, like, why would I fight for the Ukraine? I'm, I'm black. Like, don't you have eyes? Can't you see like what's going on here, <laughs> right? And it's just, it's so revealing, right? But I think that you know America getting its ass handed to it by the East. I mean, it could create all kinds of good outcomes, to be honest, really. And it's a little bit dangerous to be like cheering for that. But you know, in a, in a way, you kind of have to because, like, that's the only way that the the myth of America is going to get replaced. Um, and and it actually goes back. It's it's very deep. The myth of America is revolution. It's a hard break with Europe. Um, I, uh, sometimes I say that I think that as a Canadian myself, every, everything that's wrong with Canada comes down to the fact that it forgot that it was supposed to be British, right? Like the you guys, I mean, you, you guys have such, a, has, have such an interesting history and, mo and a lot of Canadians I talk yeah. to, unless they're really deeply into their own history, know nothing about their own history. It's no, very, it's true. It's I remember very like, strange when I was in high school, 
I was taught history. I was taught Canadian history, and I found it so boring. It was just taught with absolutely no zeal and no um, no heart, like in, and no pride. This was this is part of the problem. And Americans don't have that. Americans have pride in in their American history, but I think at, at the same time, part of the the myth that animates American history is revolution and it's this hard break with the past that kind of is the problem that is our myth right right and and like even in some sense as europeans and that myth is what's killing us we need a new myth like what joel was saying before about neoclassical economics with no interest in history this is spot on right it's a kind of year zero ideology the idea that everything that came before us doesn't matter uh, or has been superseded, when in reality, you know, uh, in, just to stay on the topic of, of economics, the American school of economics is thoroughly historicist. It built America, not to mention China, and it's been completely forgotten, right? Like this year zero ideology is is just basically liberalism in a nutshell. It takes the abstraction for the reality uh, instead of the concrete history, which is the true reality. And I mean, it's a bit, uh, you know, kind of tasteless for a non-American here to be critiquing the myth of America. But I think America itself is is kind of coming to see it this way as well. Um, in terms of historical identity, there's a sense in which America, a very real sense in which America is an extension of Europe. There's a deeper and older myth of America as fundamentally a continuation of European civilization, I think that can breathe life back into America. And unfortunately, it's got to a point where collapse, at least collapse of the elite's structure is required for this. You know, history is racist. European history, European history is uniquely racist. I mean, wrong, you know, that that's exactly what needs to be excavated. And, and the, I think one of the ways that that's most likely to happen is for us to get pounded by the East. This might create conditions where this shitty ideology can be peeled back and, uh, you know, excavated root and branch. There's well, no I think better winning the, but, probably the worst thing that ever happened to America, at least American culture. I mean, the 80s was so cool. And it's been like this rapid descent ever since in terms of cultural production. So I, I think basically winning the Cold War would kind of produced a kind of identity crisis because then it was like, oh, so I guess, I guess, uh, I guess this is the end of history. I guess we did, we did figure it out. And, and so this, uh, this vapid culture that's kind of remaining in the West in the nineties, like this is, this is it. Like all that it really had left was fighting totalitarianism or whatever. Um, and then once it takes the W, um, it's kind of like lost its zeal in a sense. Um, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, like what we're seeing with this like kind of uh, mass support for the Ukraine kind of meme that's uh, spread like wildfire online um, is, is a kind of reinf like, like, you know, you guys were saying before about how, like, even if people don't like the government, well, they still kind of fundamentally implicitly endorse like liberal ideology and this is what we see it's like everything is framed as in this evil dictator is invading countries because it's mean or even like the, the kind of whole covid thing like the kind of covid conspiracy theory it's like the government's trying to take away our rights like everything is still back processed through this kind of um, you know these kind of this liberal purview uh, and, and so insofar as that's that's based it's basically just a negative ideology right like it doesn't it's it, there's no assertion of this is who we are and this is 
our project in history. Instead, it's just constantly reacting against these evil forces or whatever that are trying to oppress us constantly from every direction. And so I think if uh, that, that kind of can kind of make sense if at the same time as uh, you know, you're, you're kind of animating your society with this myth, you kind of look around and it seems like you're the world leader and you have more money than anyone else and you have like more advanced shit than anyone else and everyone's trying to copy you and imitate you and move into your countries. You know, you, it, it feels as though, well, uh, like you can get a kind of confidence, I guess, in, in basically in your society because it's like it, it's in this like powerful pinnacle position. Whereas if everything goes wrong and you can see these other nations surpassing you, I think that eventually at a certain point, that's going to have to force a kind of humbling, like, wait a second, like, uh, like maybe the entire fundamental, you know, ideological architecture of this thing was rotten. Otherwise, how did it end up like this? Um, and I think that humbling is what's necessary for our civilization. I think all of Western civilization, uh, because, uh, you know, like the reason why we got so far ahead wasn't because of the ideas that we've had over the last few decades. It was because of the ideas and innovations we made over the last few hundred years that we've uh, radically turned against and lost the capacity to reproduce in many cases. And so I think then a new myth can kind of really be kind of forged as to who we are out of like, you know, trying to pick up the pieces of that and, and, and put, put ourselves back together. So much like what uh, Bordeaux was saying about the, the Chinese after like the kind of, the kind of disaster of what the 20th century was in a way it was kind of like a refresh it was a kind of savage thing to go through but they came out the other side with a kind of like revived sense of themselves and we're probably going to need to do that ourselves for the 21st century really. culture identity and myth need an enemy it needs something to sharply define itself against and i i used to i had this talking point that i did for a while in order i mean i'm I generally don't like to do the right wing, left wing type thing because I think it's very often inaccurate and very limiting, but it is useful heuristic and I think it'll work here. I've I've often said that right wing, the right wing are moral in this society, at least in America, right wingers are moral relativists, left wingers have a religious morality and a motivating myth. Because with, with right wingers, they it's it's there's no because there's nothing that unifies them. It's all in reaction to the to the revolutionary spirit of America, basically, and to the into the elites of you know primarily the Jewish but other but others as well that rule that country and so all they are defined as is in reaction to that in order to in order to have the biggest possible tent possible they have to necessarily become relativists in order to believe that they are opposing that in any way when they actually aren't they they really actually aren't Le I mean the left wing which is really just liberalism they have they have an animating myth america is a white supremacist country and it has to be that has to be undone root and stem so i mean that's so they they have they have they they see us as the enemy and therefore their culture or what i would just call culture distortion but their culture their identity their myth sharply defined and that's the problem we are really having and why we have you know we have all these conversations about how well, what's 
and why you get into all these online fights about like, well, what's the religion going to be for everybody? And are, are we going to have a religion or like who's, who's within our little in group here is that you guys are, if you got, if you're discussing things at that point, I mean, it's all theoretical and you're basically just, you're just discussing another form of ideology or, you know, you're hoping that once you establish that ideology, you're going to get everybody on board. And like, we have this sharply defined, we have a, we have our 100 step game plan here. Let's go forward. I, I think the easier way to do to, to do that instead of trying to make that work is you need a you need something that can actually cause you to become sharply defined and I until and when you when you're dealing with a mass that generally is not going to go along with you anyways because that's the thing like when people talk about how do we red pill the normies uh you you can't because even if you because the thing is like even if you agree get the quote unquote normie to agree with you on crime statistics and and Jewish power and and the uh, the homosexual question and all that they're going to the inevitable question they're going to they're the inevitable question they're going to pose to you is okay so what you don't have a, you don't have an avenue to power you can't do anything about that why are you asking me to put my livelihood on the line for your pipe dream i have to work with i mean they're, they're not going to be that articulate that is the the essence of what they're saying is like i have to work with what I have. I'm just a normie. I can't. I have to go with what is capable, with what's actually possible. And honestly, they, if these people are in power, they must have done something right. They must know better than you. Maybe they're right. That's the problem you're you're dealing with. And I don't. And until you, until like again, like until the United States suffers that debilitating blow that causes everybody to no longer see it as legitimate and to question. Why are we following this? Is there somebody else we can follow? That's the brick wall you're going to keep running into. Yeah, and this is um, actually something that I spoke with uh, uh, with Frothy Midyard about on on the new Imperium cast or new Imperium Press channel about is you know how do we sort of like build a coalition on the radical right that can hang together. Because, you know, clearly what's been going on on Telegram and, you know, in the wider sort of dissident sphere is there's been a lot of factionalism and, you know, there's kind of camps starting to emerge. There's a kind of libertarian camp on the one side and uh, an authoritarian camp, shall we say, on the other. <clears throat> and they kind of hate each other. <laughs> and it's starting to become very acrimonious. Um, uh, and, like, I mean, there's a sense in which, like, being reactionary or... Um, like, you know, standing against something rather than for something is enough, actually. So like Carl Schmidt says, you know, tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. This is actually kind of a – there's a deep metaphysical principle here. Defining yourself as against something, differential ontology, is probably the right ontology. I mean the fact is defining as against the outsider works. Uh, clearly, if it didn't work, we wouldn't be in this situation because the other side is doing that and we're not, and this is why we're losing. And it, I would even go so far as to say that it is healthy as well. This is like this is the only way that peoples have ever seen themselves, and it's impossible actually to see yourself as a coherent thing in the beginning without seeing yourself as against some other thing. Um, and to sort of and tie it back into the whole normie question that you've raised. The fact is that the normie, he, he's not going to get on board un, until his having a fat belly, a full wallet, and a soft cushion comes to an end. It's not gonna. He's not going to get on board with anything 
until he has to, right? Because the, by de- by almost by definition, the you know the mass of people are kind of inert, and they they sort of need to be you know an impetus needs to sort of start them in a direction. But when the time comes, if we don't have a very coherent, worked out idea of who the enemy really is. And, um, you know, what it is that we would like to see in place of them, how we define ourselves as against the shitty, you know, liberal culture that's been killing us. If we don't have all these things kind of in place, then the opportunity is going to be missed. Um, You know, COVID presented a a kind of an opportunity. I mean, we're not there yet, but that's just the kind of crisis where if, you know, a generation from now, the dissident right, radical right, is uh, sort of in a better place to uh, do things or like to actually like make real change in real life. That this, you know, might you know, we might have actually been able to move the dial here, right? Like, if at the time when you know the George Floyd riots are happening, you know, guys are able to go out and sort of keep order in the suburbs. Uh, through by any means necessary, shall we say, uh, then this sort of puts us into a position of having some sort of legitimate claim to be able to say, like, look, we can we can sort of hold the thing together when the ship is falling apart. So, but for but we need to have this sort of ideology in a way worked out. Even you know, given all the caveats from before about it needing to be historicist and all that. We do need to have these things kind of worked out ahead of time before the opportunity arises, and that'll sort of help us create a, a coherent in-group. But I guess the point I'm sort of driving at is that it's enough to just have an enemy and have the enemy kind of, uh, at least in the beginning, define who you are, because realistically, that's the way it's always worked. Yeah, but I mean, in order to have an enemy, you have to know who you are. Otherwise, you don't... like the, like. In the same sense that you're saying you can define yourself against an enemy, how do you even realize that enemy without defining the enemy against yourself? You're, otherwise, you're presupposing the enemy already has, um, you already have a kind of knowledge of the problem, if you will, and uh, and, and already have a way of identifying with yourself as a, a victim or a uh, outsider or whatever from. Um, otherwise, otherwise, why? Why is the ruling class your enemy? Why don't you just agree with them? Um, why don't you just participate in society? Why, why even oppose it in the first place? But I think this is a problem. I don't think we can just be like, well, we're all on team racism, so it doesn't really matter what other ideas everyone has. Because, you know, we can all come together and uh, you know, be racist, and we can build a political movement out of this. I think it requires more than that. I think um, it's. Uh, I think I think a more comprehensive diagnosis of the problem is required, and 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 I think like if you look to like revolutionary history, whether you take the example of the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or the Chinese Revolution as like the three major socio-economic transformations of modernity occurred through revolutionary change. Um, this uh, book by Theta, a Scotch poll, States and Social Revolutions, has a kind of deep dive into this. And essentially, a theory, and she 
goes from Lenin, uh, obviously a, like a major participant in, in one of these revolutions, who says, Lenin says that revolutions don't come just because of discontent from below. Um, discontent from below is always going to be there. Revolutions come when the political form or the political uh, kind of the status quo no longer suits the ruling class. Um, and so Scotch Pole's overall thesis is that in all three of these revolutions in France, uh, Russia, and, and, and China, they weren't forced by the actual victors of the revolution in either in any of the three cases. What happened was, was that these states were put under geopolitical pressure in their competition with other states that required them to basically reform their socioeconomic system to compete. Because basically, the French, like the, the British, um, started adapting to industrialization quicker and started outcompeting them. Um, when it came to the Russians, obviously, they got their... Uh, there was like Western European powers that were pressuring them. They got their ass handed to them by the Germans in World War One, or the Chinese. I mean, Western powers were besieging them in the early uh, 20th century. In all three cases, then, what was required was that political elites um, essentially needed to go had structural interests to go against the kind of like dominant economic classes who were quite happy. They wanted the status quo to remain because they were benefiting from the status quo. But the status quo had to be reformed in order to, in order, by the political leadership, in order to like, compete with their foreign uh, adversaries. So this ended up producing a situation where you have essentially a competition between rents and taxes, um, you know, because they're all feudal societies. And um, they're both trying to like basically rent and tax the same productive surplus. Um, this leads to a kind of antagonism between the aristocracy and the, uh, the monarchs. I'm simplifying, but eventually they turn on each other, and this ends up destabilizing the entire political system. The aristocracy basically take out the monarchs in all three cases, and then once they do that, the entire political system is destabilized, and then the uh, you know, a revolution from below is able to occur where um, revolutionary forces were able to then take advantage of basically the, de the full destabilization of these respective political structures to create new orders. And I think, um, you know, that's seemingly the scenario that's occurring with the United States and with, with the West in general, is that, is that basically for a long time it managed, it was the most advanced, uh, you know, system. And so this enabled, because it had so much excess, this enabled the, the kind of an elite to kind of parasitically set itself up and control. And now the West is actually getting a decent challenge, finally. It's no longer, it's gonna to have to you know, reform itself so that it can run coherently and like eject these parasites. But these parasites are not gonna like that and they've established a lot of political power. Capacity for the state to do this, I don't think is very high. So this is likely to produce a tension where basically, obviously everyone loses if, uh, if the West can't meet its international challenges in the ruling class, but then the ruling class itself will have a kind of contradictory, uh, contradictory dynamic. And this presents, I think, an opportunity, not tomorrow, but an opportunity on the horizon, you know, in the coming century, something radical to shift in, in, in our social structure. So maybe that's a white pill of sorts, even though um, things are probably going to have to get a lot worse before they can get better. And so I think our responsibility is to build a, a set of institutions and organizations that could perhaps take advantage of that, you know, down the track. Um, 
you know, if and when that moment comes, um, rather than trying to red pill the normies and you know win the next election or something with our radical political platform. Um, I think thinking in these terms is something that's probably going to be more viable because the, the level of change that's required is so radical. Like, like if you, like if you, if you, if, like it's basically be impossible to hold the system together with radical reform uh, under the current its current structure. It's it's not as though like oh if we just had like some base, you know, guy from 4chan became president then everything could be sweet. Like the whole thing would blow up. Like even Trump, as as Borzai mentioned, even Trump couldn't really achieve anything, and he was very moderate, really. So um, I think that's the kind of timescale that we should be thinking on. And so that, therefore that means I don't think we need to create a big tent. As, again, I lot of really good points by Borzo, where you were saying the right is kind of become morally relativist because it's trying to create this big tent of opponents to the dominance ideology. And it keeps losing because it's totally reactive and it has no fun, functional content. It's, it's, it doesn't have a clear um, sense of will. It's pulling in all these different directions. Um, so maybe we don't have to try and build the big tents. Maybe instead we try and, and and build a concerted, radical organization that doesn't have to grow to being some of the population tomorrow, and and build quality, not quantity, and and prepare for an opportunity when radical growth could be possible. Great revolutionary parties of the 20th century, um, whether you look at from the right or the left. Um, they all started out as very small organizations at one point, and many of them lasted for many, many years until they actually seized power. So, you know, I think having that long-term mindset is, is very important. And I think very long-term as well. I've been, this is a concept I've pushed for years, and I've had a bear of a time getting people to 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 get on board with it, but I think we this is this is what has to be done. We need dissensus. And what dissensus is, is the opposite of consensus. It is the agreement that we are not going to have a consensus on things because what we, we're we in a stage the, – the value of dissensus is when a solution is not clear and you need to find and test out different ways of solving a problem. But when you, when you put everybody in the same team, dissensus is impossible because everybody wants to input – and have influence over what somebody else is doing. And that's where I think a lot of these fractious and factionalist disputes keep coming up is because the people, and this is why I sometimes snarkily mock the idea of the movement is because there, there is, I don't just don't think there is one, but people want uh, in these actually rather niche online spaces, want the, want the ability to police other people in their viewpoints and ideas. And I think it would be better if we all just – I think honestly it would be better if a bunch of us just did not talk to each other because I think what needs to be done is people need to build their own things. And we will see who's able to make some inroads, who is able to gain strength. I think that needs to be done, but it's going to be hard to get people to agree to that I'm, I'm seeing just because – People want the desire to be able to police the big tent. They want they want that position. They want to be on the lookout for what they see as subversive elements. They want to be the one who maybe they want to be their own little leader of some sort. But 
I, I'm really hoping like as this goes on, we can get people to like just let's just not talk to each other and we'll let's meet up again in a year or two and see where where each other is. Maybe we can learn from one another what we've done. But I mean, that's I guess if, if anything, that's idealistic right there. But to me, like it's that's what's going to be necessary. And the other necessary thing to me, which is why I partly why I tell my book of essays, Culture Grug, is that I think you there needs to be kind of a synthesis of the of of a, of a progressive and reactionary sentiment I, like a, a, a progressive brain but a reactionary heart i guess would be one way of putting it because you see this the the progressive element allows you to basically better and more intelligently utilize the changes that have occurred like technological changes or or the societal changes like you, you cannot just post return to to tradition especially when that tradition has been destroyed and and have it all be okay, especially if the tradition is kind of on a weak foot because of different advances has been made. You do need that kind of progressive sentiment to propel things forward. But once you've made that propulsion, then you can take a step back and recenter towards like the organic thing that makes you who you are. That's the reactionary sentiment of it all. I mean, this is kind of a weird example, but Maybe just because I read a lot of the Ottoman Empire stuff, I think about the Turks a lot because uh, the idea of in the early 20th century, the idea of what a Turk was was a very it was a thing that was actually very hard to define. If you asked if you asked somebody in the city of Istanbul who weren't Greek speakers um, if they were a Turk, chances are they would have they would have been uh, insulted. They would have said, "No, I'm an Ottoman." Uh, or maybe I'm a or I'm a you know a citizen of the city. Uh, Turk to them was basically a, a back backwoods like either like nomadic or just a, a dirt farmer basically of, of Anatolia. Uh, you asked some intellectuals who a Turk was, and a good chance a lot of them had a pan-Turkic idea, which would have spanned even into parts of uh, European groups that we we would consider white, but. You know, it would expand. It would go for all the way from Finland to to Japan. That's to some of the very idealistic pan-Turkic intellectuals. That's who a Turk was at, at the in the early 20th century. It was it was something that was very difficult to define, and it was something that a lot of people just didn't feel innately. But the law, but the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One, and the way that it was being carved up by the Allies forced them to very quickly define what a Turk was. And uh, Kamal Mustafa, Ataturk, basically saved the, I mean, he had to go against the own, his own caliphate to do it because the caliph was going, the sultan was going along with, actually both, the caliph and the sultan were going along with what the allies wanted in terms of carving up the Ottoman Empire. Ataturk got these disparate elements together that were still around in Anatolia, and they fought for their independence, and they were able to prevent a complete cut-up of, of their lands. And then he had the pro- – because he was a very progressive secular person himself. He had the project of basically trying to invent the Turkic identity. He gave them, a, he gave them a, an alphabet. He, they, they changed the name system. They did all kinds of stuff for, for the Turks. Now – over time, that secular his party that sec and that secular progressive state has completely eroded into what I would say is probably the more true character of the Turk people themselves of under Erdogan. He he may not be the leader a lot of them 
want, but he represents that more, I, I would say that, that more uh, rustic, chauvinistic uh, kind of, well, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be neutral here on the Turks here, but he, I think he, and that religious aspect, I think, I think he represents more an idea of what the, Tur- of who the Turkish people actually are. But it was thanks to that progressive state that they were able to implement that though they even had a chance of developing themselves. That was the spark. And the when the reactionary heart sets in, I think you get a true sense of who a people really are, but you need the capability of creating that first. So that's kind of the synthesis I think that needs to to occur. That's the idea trying to create these this this all encompassing identity first and then and then trying to implement it is just not going to work because that's they that's not how they started. They started with like we are in like we are being absolutely displaced, destroyed, and completely you know like wiped off the map, off the face of the earth as a people. We are you know they they'd be a Turkic minority in every single country, but no state for themselves. Once they were able to establish a state, then they could begin the project of this is who we are. But you it. It had to the way it had to work, though, was it just you had you had a certain amount of people that were willing to do the fighting and they weren't worried about the big tent. Right now, we have to survive. And I think there's lessons you can take from that. I, I, what the, unfortunately for what I think what the Turks became was one of necessity. It's like when the population exchanges happened, a lot of Gurk, a lot of Greeks ended up on the Turkish side and a lot of Turks ended up on the Greek side because they decided just instead of trying to figure out who was who, they just broke it down by religion. It's like, okay, are you a Muslim? You go over to Turkey. Are you a uh, Christian? You go over to Greece, regardless of what their actual ethnic heritage were. That's something I would like to avoid, but you can pick up lessons from what happened to the Turks to see like, what what we need to watch out for going forward. Well, the Turks are a good test case because, um, <clears throat> you know, they view themselves obviously as Muslims. This is an inherent part of their identity, but they also view themselves as descending from somewhere else and being, you know, essentially like East Asians in their sort of provenance where they've come from. They, they view themselves at once on a sort of short, shorter time scale, but also on a longer time scale that reaches back ultimately to like the ancient North Eurasian cultural complex that goes back like tens of thousands of years. Um, and th- this is kind of like we need to look on the, the long time scale as well. I absolutely agree with with you, Joel and, and Borza. We, we, I think we are all on the same page. We need to look at the long time scale. Who we are is a historical reality. It's it's it, it's it's historical. It's not a proposition. It's barely even an idea. I mean, who we are is something you can point to. You know, Europeans, so to speak. It's who we were since the beginning of time. And our our enemy that we define ourselves as against is everything that hates who we've always been. And this is just how it, you know. Speaking of historicism, uh, this is how it has always worked historically. Like most most ethnonyms in anthropology, this is recognized, mean the people, as against the, the radical other, who is something kind of less than human. This is just how people define themselves. It's how it has worked, and it doesn't need to be philosophically coherent. It doesn't need to be able to be set forth um, in a, you know. 
in words even. And this is what the Machiavellians, you know, historicists and like Friedrich List and others, this is what they're all doing. They throw away all the propositional identity and they ask what works. And the only way you can know what works is by looking at what has worked. I mean, you need to look at the longest historical time frame. I mean, this is the kind of animating idea behind the Lindy rule, which is something I think needs to be uh, you know, stand a little, a little harder in our circles. You need to take a radically empirical view of the matter. And this is what constructive political movements have always done. Uh, from Confucianism all the way up to Romantic nationalism. The fact is that we do need to return, right? Like when we strayed from reality, just saying like we need to accept progress won't help, right? Like cancer progresses. Progress itself is is neutral. It, I mean, it doesn't mean that progress is going to help us. It also doesn't mean that we need to go back to using like Bronze Age tools and, and you know, whatnot. What it does mean is that we need to accept that who we are as a people is the same as who we were as far back in history as you can go. Like history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. The inessential things change, but the essence of who we are doesn't change. So yeah, absolutely. We, we need to sort of purge the kind of unserious elements in our midst. Again, this is something that I talked to Frothy about, um, and create a kind of vanguard, uh, you know, and, and sort of, shed all the populist baggage. It doesn't mean that the, the people don't matter. Ultimately, any sovereign is going to serve the people and, um, you know, it's, if not serve, at least do right by the people. But we do need to get rid of this idea that we just need to, the, the more the better, the more the merrier. The fact is that, you know, any, as Joel's pointed out uh, in this podcast many times before, the fact is that anything that's ever changed the tra trajectory of history has been done by a minority. And this is what the Italian elite theorists are saying. This is what so many people that have, you know, are right on the money are saying. And it's what we need to do. So in a sense, we need to kind of hunker down, realize who the enemy is, use that as an animating principle to begin with, and then construct something from there. Yeah, and then if, uh, if, we, ca if we capture the institutions, we can institute our own hyper-reality to motivate the masses. I like what you say a lot about uh, we need to be progressives, even though obviously we have a kind of reactionary element. Because, I mean, I, I made this case in the video that I did with uh, Ed Woods a couple weeks ago on uh, liberalism versus nationalism. And that was based upon a bunch of conversations that Keith and I had for a few weeks because we were both reading various different authors um, uh, on basically sociological theory of nationalism, a whole branch of sociology. Um, uh, and there's it's basically three main categories of thought. You have so-called modernists, the ethno-symbolists, and the primordialists. And the primordialists say, you know, nations are kind of uh, eternal forms, um, eternal ethnic forms. The ethno-symbolists say um, nations, uh, they reflect um, ethnic forms, or ethnic forms have a particular kind of historical development. Um, they kind of reject the primordialist claim that they uh, have, have a kind of like static um, continuity through history, but it's a bit more nuanced, a bit more constructivist, but they also reject the modernist claim, which is that basically nationalism is just uh, like nations are just a, a product of modernity but because modernity 
um, you know, democratized um, the means of production by moving everyone into these big cities, plugging them into this like you know industrial architecture, democratization of weapons in the sense we can create mass armies as opposed to you know elite fighting forces. Um, this had the effect of you know essentially rewarding mass identification with the state. Um, and, and a lot of the, you know, that are modernist, nationalist uh, kind of, from a particular ethnic background and kind of Marxist. Um, and so you can see they kind of have a bit of a motivation. I think the ethno-symbolists make um, the best case, although all three branches have something interesting to say. Um, one of the modernist theorists, uh, Benedict Anderson, he wrote a book called Imagined uh, Communities. I thought it's a modernist take, so there's problems with it. But uh, it, is, it is interesting because unlike a lot of the other modernists who kind of rely upon kind of, you know, uh, structural economic explanations, he says that nationalism as a kind of force of modernity, what really kind of gave, imbued it with so much power was basically the decline of, of faith. That as people, you know, developed atheistic, views because of the alignment um there was a kind of lack of sense of like transcendence uh, in a kind of like from an existential standpoint and so kind of destiny and history um of their people and participating in that like kind of like filled that void now i i actually reject this view in the sense that this the rise of nationalism doesn't really correspond with the decline in religiosity like the decline in religiosity doesn't really happen at all 20th century in, in, a, in a really serious way, and um, nationalism was already kind of quite well established. There's actually a lot of convergence between religious faith and uh, <laughs> and like the formation of nationalism. I mean, it just as you mentioned before, you have like the Turks and like the Muslim country and the Greeks and the Orthodox country, or you know the break of Yugoslavia. You've got like the Croatians and the Serbs who are very similar in most ways, but like one's Catholic and one's Orthodox. The Bosnians are Muslim and so. Um, I don't really buy the thesis, but I think the existential dimension of national, the reason why I was interested in that existential dimension, that you, you might talk about his, uh, historicism, like you can't really have a sense of destiny that's kind of collectively motivated without a shared sense of history. And I guess this is where like the kind of mythic component comes in. And that's why I think the ethno-symbolists uh, in this particular domain have the most interesting stuff to say. I made a video on Anthony Smith's The Ethnic Origins of Nations because for Smith, ethnicity is not just simply a biological thing. Um, he doesn't really put a lot of effort into like annihilating the relevance of biology to ethnicity. Um, obviously, that'd be kind of politically incorrect. So he kind of, you can see he kind of just avoids that kind of uh, whole aspect of it. But he does make a good case that, like, you know, a kind of what he calls a myth symbol complex is essential to the formation of ethnic identity. That ethnic identities can kind of lay dormant, become politicized uh, when, when they're under stress. Uh, also, I was making that obviously with the class of the Ottomans as, as, a, as an example. And so, this um, you know existential uh, dimension to nationalism. What's what's interesting is that with, with modernist theory is that you know it, it insofar as it uh, accommodates this, it also says, but wait a second, like nationalism. It's something that is kind of specific to uh, modernity in the sense that you could even give the, see the argument, okay, there was nations before modernity, there was ethnic groups, uh, and that had political relevance. 
but nationalism as a, a formal ideology, um, you know, this is something that obviously did develop in modernity in a new way. The, the end of you know the, the end of empires, the end of city states, like you know city states gather into nations or empires break up into nations, um, and the modernists say that this happened. You know, for a, a, a series of, of reasons, but fundamentally it's because of industrialization, communication, centralized education, there were components to this. And so in a sense, there is like a progressive force in history, therefore, that kind of brings nationalism into being. Um, and, and so, you know, to be a nationalist, you can't really be just a reactionary then, because there is something modern about this ideology in a sense, like the, um, like the kind of nation state form is a purely, is a fundamentally modern instrument. Um, and, and so in the same way, that's, uh, doesn't mean that we, you know, look at all previous social forms as bad, um, and say, well, you know, you know, morally condemn feudalism or empire as in their historical forms. But instead of take a progressive view that, like, you know, there's a kind of development through history of, of the national, and the national form is like the end of this, like, long process of, like, historically realizing one state. And so I think that's just one view that can be kind of negative from, like, the right wing perspective is, like, uh, rather than, like, kind of viewing modernity as this tragedy, that modernity has come along. And it's forced us into into industrialization, and it's undermined, you know, our culture, and it's turned us all into bugmen or whatever. I feel like this view—it's not going to be the kind of view of people who actually take over and start running society. People who are going to take over and run society are people that are going to look at modernity and say, uh, and see opportunities. But see a kind of in the kind of structural processes of the modern world, there is opportunity to create great things, great new things. And in many ways, like that's really what nationalism was when in practice, in, 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 uh, it was fundamentally progressive. That isn't to say that it was liberal, uh, or like progressive in the sense of um, how it's understood, like American progressivism or something, but progressive in the more general sense of the term, like progressive as in participating in like the development of you know, civil society and, and the political form through history. Um, and so I think Borzoi is completely on the money with the necessity to kind of have that progressive mentality, um, which is sort of lacking at, on the right. And I think a big reason why the left keeps taking W is because they do have that. They do kind of see uh, modernity as this fundamentally positive thing. And they, even if they have a warped view of the world, in, in our opinions, um, it's, it makes a lot more sense why they're holding the machinery of it. Well, this modern view of nationalism, I mean, to, you know, separate it from modernity, which is a sort of different thing, but this, you know, the idea that nationalism is something modern seems like just obviously wrong. Like, you know, the, the fact is what, what it is that sort of changed in the modern era that, that gave birth to, quote, nationalism is what was inessential about nationalism. Like basically it was all the instrumental machinery that sort of enabled the nation state to upscale and to become larger than what it was before, which was, you know, in ancient times, city states and the feudal era, you know, a slightly larger area, but 
in any case, yeah, it just it seems like the idea that you know something like fundamentally like categorically new has been born in modernity is just wrong. Like, you know, it nothing new has happened in the uh, you know, since the Industrial Revolution in terms of the ideology of what constitutes the nation. Like, you know, you can read uh Fustel de Coulange uh, the ancient city, and you will see the most nationalist, the most patriotic, the most illiberal, imaginable societies there. Uh, like these, this is what national nationalism looks like. Sort of, um, you know, stripping away all of the uh, the instrumental stuff that, like, you know, makes it able to scale. Like, you know, yeah, of course, industrialism has changed something. Of course, you know, modern technology has changed some things. Of course, you know, expanded uh, technological communications has uh, changed something, but it's, it's, it ha- what it hasn't changed is the actual essence of what constitutes the nation. All it's done is sort of make it, made it so that the nation can, can be larger than, than it was in, in the, in the ancient period. So I, I, I would push back against this notion of the progress. Difference, the difference between nations and national, like, like nationalism is a specific, um, like theory of, of of the state form, whereas like nations, so it's like applying the nation uh, to the state and saying that this is fundamentally where the state gets legitimacy from. But obviously, you know, in previous eras, there was more of an emphasis on, um, you know, like the kind of divine sovereignty, the notion that the law fundamentally reflected the divine will. Um, and there was, you know, like there were, as you said, city-states, so like the political form didn't necessarily correspond to the ethnic form. There could be an ethnicity with multiple different kings that make it up. And um, it is true that the modernists are wrong. Like the modernists are definitely wrong, and they've been BTFO'd by um, their critics in the field of the sociology of nationalism. Like, for example, English nationalism is easily a thousand years old. Um, French nationalism is much older than the French Revolution. But the intensification of the significance of the nation to the state is, is something that happens with modernity, in the sense that modernity makes the nation even more important than it already was to political legitimacy and political organization. And that's what I meant by a progressivism, that it's like, yeah. so it's like modernity, doesn't, modernity hasn't actually worked against us in this. Respect. There's this idea that modernity equals liberalism or something, that like modernity has been liquidating the nation, but actually... It might appear that way from the perspective of an Anglo-Saxon because we were like we, we kind of have a much older nationalism than most of the other countries in the world, and so and and we also have like more intense liberalism than the other countries in the world. So that's how it appears to us. But if you take a kind of more general kind of context, it's actually in the opposite for many other in many other experiences of different like of, of other nations. Yeah, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, equate modernity and liberalism. I think that is definitely a mistake. I mean, for me, uh, without going into it in detail, I mean, I, I trace liberalism back to the Axial Age, um, at least the seeds of liberalism. But it seems to me that this ethno symbolist view has a lot more going for it. I mean, I, I would, I would identify more with the primordialist view, but the ethno symbolism has a lot going for it. The idea that you know, traditions and historical facts and values and myths, um, symbols and these things uh, are all constitutive of nationalism. That This, I think, has a lot going for it. As long as we understand that these things like myths and, and, and values are not sort of 
things that are in, um, you know, floating around in the ether and that can attach themselves in principle to any ethnicity, that basically the ethnicity and the value have to be uh, made for each other or in concert. Uh, so, you know, you can't transpose like a value from a radically different society onto one other. Uh, if, if we understand that, then I think the ethno symbolism makes a lot of sense. It has to be like passed down through, like you're born into something. It can't be something that's just like astroturfed and otherwise it ends up being very inauthentic, right? So, just handing out a document that says you're an American citizen or an Australian citizen, this doesn't make you an American or an Australian ethnically um, in any real way, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of like it's it's almost like we have to do away with the idea of like magic dirt theory in the sense of ideology as well. Like there's no no amount of um, you know there, there there's no argument that's going to turn a sub-Saharan African into a Northwestern European in terms of their values or their like, you know, myths or traditions or anything like that. Um, and nor is it, you know, even, even a, a sort of more functional society like the Northeastern Asians uh, cultural complex, never really going to be liberals because it's just not in them. It's, it's not Aboriginal to them. It's not native to them. Uh, so yeah, the, I think, this the ethno symbolism approach really makes a lot of sense as long as we bear that in mind and keep keep in mind the idea that like peoples and ideas are not fundamentally separate things. Yeah, but of course that's why like ethno symbolism very much emphasizes the sense of the shared history. So like if you're not like in, like when I hear stories from my family about my ancestors that fought for Australia and for Britain in, in wars um, or you know, I know about like you know figures of uh, like in my family tree that play different roles in British and Australian society. That that gives me a sense of like connection to these two countries. Whereas if I was to move to France and like marry a French girl or something, I'll never do this. But I, like for the for argument's sake, uh, I would never really be able to feel that way, even if I got French citizenship. Or, um, you know, but m maybe my kid would. It, you know, but so so obviously there there's ways of like switching into different ethnicities, perhaps if it's a closer experience or but if I moved to like you know Ethiopia or something, <laughs> it would that obviously wouldn't work. So I mean, obviously these are like the constraints. Um, but I think the other the other flip side of the coin is you get biological reductionists who say everything is just all about. You know, white people can just live anywhere in, in any Western country and they're automatically part of that. And and like all the individual distinctions between all our separate nation states and sub ethnicities don't matter. I think I think that also is is a very reductive view that doesn't make a great deal of sense. It, it maybe makes more sense in the mind of an American in a sense, because how America had so much complex European immigration from all these different European uh, nations um, uh, to build their kind of composite you know, white America identity, um, but in a way, like I think that maybe has has been a negative thing from the outside looking in. Um, like it seems as though like the, I mean maybe now it's it, over time. Like time can obviously um, change things. So like as time goes on, ethnogenesis like there's more time for ethnogenesis to happen. Um, but I think you need to have that 
theory of ethnogenesis. You can't just kind of assume, you know, race equals ethnicity or just, or, or also like not respect that like a process, like people can switch ethnicities. Like, you know, people can marry out into like different ethnicities or, or, you know, immigrate and like, you know, join another people to like, you know, in, within reason, within certain constraints, and that can be a feasible thing, but it would it takes time. And I think that ethnosymbolism kind of gives you a kind of more robust theory for kind of working out all of those edge cases um, that's a lot more intellectually satisfying um, and can and, and can explain, I think, um, there, there is, I think, really significant differences between being a Frenchman or being, being British or, you know, being, you know, Russian or whatever. And, and and so that's important as well. Like, like what's the point of preserving so-called white identity? You liquidate all of our ethnospecificity. It's like you're like, just, yeah. it's kind of like destructive of people in its own way. Well, I mean, that's the biological. Why I... Oh, sorry, you're back. <laughs> sorry, we should yeah. mention that we weren't just talking over Borzoi the whole time there. He uh, he had to step away, but he's back now. Uh, that's well. That's why I I, I find the ideas of Francis Parker Yaki going to be very relevant going forward because he was confronting a lot of this in the 1950s with the, with the nascent, you know, post-World War II white, you know, white nationalist movement. And he's always, he was a controversial figure then he was a, he's a controversial figure now, but I find that a lot of his ideas have a potencies for people aren't familiar with. He was kind of, he's kind of classified as a neo Spenglerian because he got a lot of his ideas from Spengler. But his concept of race kind of is there's some unusual aspects of it with the with the with, for example, like his idea of like the vertical race versus the horizontal race. I guess the way that to think of that is um, basically the horizontal race is the one that is the race that expands. The vertical race is the one that is basically more insular and builds up. It's a very, very, very simplistic way of putting it, but it's the easiest way to explain it on short notice here. But what yeah, because Yaki saw kind of the the flexible how how flexible race could be, and that there in while race is biological, there is also a race is a feeling aspect to it. And he, he saw a lot of the problems as being this what he called 19th century materialism. And which is you can see that as kind of also leading to a different branch of that leading to man as econ as homo economicus, the economic unit man. But what Yaki says saw as the most important principle that guided race was the capital C culture as a, a culture mission. And for Yaki, because he just didn't see like because so many things go into that culture mission, it's impossible for it to be propositional because it's basically the grand unifying aspect of a race and so while when you break it down you'll find like oh maybe there's different ethnicities here or you'll find somebody who is is actually like biologically is racially different but they do seem to have like they're that rare example somebody who's got who has that that the soul of another race that does i mean all of these grand uh, exceptions to the rule that that people constantly throw at us to try and trip us up. Yaki had no problem with incorporating that in there because that's what they are. They're exceptions, and they're exceptions that had basically become part of the same culture mission. And that culture mission has borders, and some of those and and the borders might be a little bit might be a little bit uh, permeable, but within the core center of the culture mission, that is the race. That is 
unchanged. And I think having that kind of con that having that guiding principle of it helps to kind of cut through some of the like some of the getting into the weeds of of ethnicity and oh can can these group of people feel you know be are they the same race or where where's the cutoff point i think once the when you see it as culture i think it starts to clear things up a little bit so i think we should be we should aspire to be nuanced races you know like nuanced races <laughs> a complex theory of ethnogenesis that can really because that, that's really how you deal with um you know a lot of the objections to, to these things and i think the more details like honest detail that you add and the more honest and like truth focused you are rather than um, being kind of like feeling as though we have to, I sense a lot of people have in, in this movement, which I guess I can empathize with is like, we feel under attack. We feel like there are forces in our society, obviously, which are trying to undermine our ethnic and racial identity. Um, and so you you know you want to erect defenses against any kind of critical thought that, that would be kind of imposed upon these questions because you you're afraid that that could lead to undermining um, you know the, the integrity of our identification with our with our race or whatever. Um, but I think like you know w within our milieu, like surely we, we're all kind of already kind of figured out that we're all racist, so we don't really have to suspect each other of not being real racist, and we can maybe engage in some of this critical theory. I think it can be for the benefits of of bringing people to our side. If we have a very nuanced view, um, I think that's going to be more attractive to high quality people than if you have a reductive view, like if you want to red pill people, so to speak, on the subject. So these kinds of discussions are very important for that reason. But I mean, I see that we've been going for over two hours here. I don't, I don't know if you guys want to say anything else, but um, like just like uh, I'm pretty much uh, done. But I really enjoyed this. I'm, I'm really glad we had one dude. Uh, do you do you want to cover hyper reality stuff with the war right now, or do you want to maybe table that for uh, for another time? Yeah, maybe, maybe we can leave that for another time because we we got so much we got through so much already as it is. It's kind of funny that that subject that we thought we were talking about at the beginning when we got ready. I don't think the war is going away anytime soon right now, or at least, and even if it does, the uh, the after effects of that will will be able, much like COVID, we'll be able to study uh, the hyper reality of uh, pandemics and war for for many years to come. It's only going to get more hyper real. <laughs> it's hyper real so, all of it on social media where's the best place for people to follow you so i only have two uh so if, if you're a subscriber to the right stuff biz, we do have a small uh forum over there but i'm not very active on i'm, I'm a moderator in there but i'm not very active on that but uh for people who aren't uh subscribers you don't don't need to worry about that because uh, my two most active places are Post, which is P-O-A dot S-T. Now, what Post is, is basically a Twitter clone. It's part of a of what's called the Fediverse. To explain this simply, it's just a bunch of Twitter clones that are talking to one another. In fact, actually, if you're on, it doesn't, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be on, on Post. There's other instances. I just happen to be on Post. 
if you fo- if you're on any Fediverse instance, you could actually follow Twitter accounts too. Now, people who have Twitter accounts won't be able to interact with your stuff because they're not seeing it. But there's a way to actually follow Twitter accounts, so you can take you you can combine all of your your Fediverse experience and Twitter experience into one if you're not the type of person to interact with Twitter accounts. So, uh, but yeah, I'm Borzoi um, at post poa poa dot st. It's a good time over there. Or if you prefer more, if you prefer less shit posting and you want to see me at least post a little bit more um, content, I guess content, although I do kind of forward a lot of memes. My telegram is, uh, is racebores, t.me slash racebores. And I also have a book club where I post the excerpts from books I've been reading, uh, which is t.me slash borzoi books. Uh, right now I'm going through like the uh, yeah. Apple and Google blocked on Telegram. So, oh yeah, uh, um, yeah. You might want to put a link there for people because it's it's hard to find me on there. I, yeah. I. Oh yeah. And if you have Android, you're gonna need. I mean, if you have Android, you need. If you have Android, you need to download the APK and sideload it into your phone. Don't download from the Google Play Store. If uh, you're on, uh, what's it called? Apple. You're gonna need to. You're gonna need to set up basically a web Telegram thing on on your phone. It's it's a pain, but. Uh, a lot of a lot of my I, I repost a lot of stuff that I post on Telegram on on posts. So if you, if that's easier to navigate, just go there. But uh, right now on Borzoi Book Club, which is quickly one more uh, on Borzoi Book Club. Currently, I'm going through the Ottoman Endgame by uh, Sean McMeekin. Cool. Yeah, I just want to very quickly plug post. I got on there about a, a month ago as Imperium Press. And I have to say, I'm I'm quite impressed with the content. I mean, there. I mean, it's let let's just say it's very um, ideologically purist, uh, and there's a fuckload of anime. Uh, but <laughs> but that all said, um, on the whole, it's actually excellent. Uh, the, the the quality of discourse on there is much higher than I expected. I just thought it was going to be spurgery from top to tail. But it's great. Actually, I, I spend a, a fair bit of time on there. So I would recommend everybody that's listening, get a post account, follow, you know, follow Borzoi, follow me and uh, get involved in the Fediverse. Because uh, just from a technical standpoint, I think it's um, it's actually quite a good advance and it's very anti-fragile and there's good stuff going on there. So, yeah, that's my and plug. I'll for get, post. And, and I'll and I'll give people some uh, three accounts. If you're looking for like actual, if you, if you want less anime and want actual more discourse on things, three account, three of my favorite accounts over there are DK. He's a, at DK underscore uh, Dharma Raj, D H A. That guy's great. R A J. Louis Condi, L O U I S C O N D E, and Yaki Puck. Those are my. Th- those are probably three of my favorite. Uh, I, I mean, there's different. I have. I, there's different accounts that fall for different content, but in terms of the more intellectual con- uh, content, those are my three favorite accounts. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. You, sound, you made it. You made posts sound pretty cool, Mike. Here we go. So, uh, watch out. Uh, I'll be on there soon. Shit, posting it up, arguing with people. <laughs> I love. I love watching arguments. Uh, I, I think. I don't know if either of you guys really read my uh, Telegram. If you've ever seen my uh, group chat on Telegram that anyone can join, but I'd have to say it's probably like the most autistic place like I've ever encountered on the internet. It's Telegram too. Telegram seems more and I, I say this despite the fact there's a lot of autism on post. Telegram seems more autistic to me. I I tend to avoid a lot of the uh, a lot of the chats there because they're, they're, they move so quickly and there's so much going on 
post is a little bit more my speed, but it's uh it's amazing the type of content you'll find on both platforms. Yeah, I mean, I do it for the people. Like, it's really annoying moderating it and uh, getting into arguments all the time with uh, retailers, but I do it for the people because, uh, yeah, I'm just a nice guy like that. So, a lot of people, though, they have this, this idea that, like, they have, like, they're entitled to be able to say whatever their opinion is and, and then be abusive and, like, just talk shit. And, I don't, and I'm not going to delete them or something. And they're like, oh, Joel, he, he censors people. He, doesn't respect free speech. He's like, you won't ever like engage other people's ideas. It's like it's, it's my fucking chat. You know, I can do what I want. I believe in free political speech, but I'm I'm an elitist. I'm not going to tolerate shit that annoys me. Yeah, exactly. This is this is my shit. Like, go make your own chat. Um, but uh, I, I do miss Twitter because it, it was the fun thing about Twitter was like getting into an argument with someone and then like just like riding the dopamine hits to people liking your comments more than their comments and, and feeling like you won. You know, that doesn't really mean anything. Like it did, it did feel nice or just like posting gifts of like handing people L's and stuff. I do really miss uh, being a dick on Twitter. So maybe I'll get on post and try antagonizing people. If, I mean, if, uh, if Twitter's heroin post is like methadone, it 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 helps <laughs> it, it it helps with the Twitter addiction. Yeah, yeah. Just get uh, back right, on Twitter want... as a as a as an anon, Joel. That would be my recommendation. That's what I've done. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe I just it's not the same. No, it's not the same. I like the... I've had people because I used to be someone once described watching me on Twitter as watching a man on cocaine at three o'clock in the morning, beating the shit out of everyone he sees. And I had so much fun with that, but that is not something you can sustain long-term. And it's not something like if you lose your Twitter account, you can't, it's not something you can just hop right back into the, the amount of grinding I would need to do to get my Twitter account back up to where it was is that is not, that is not worth my mental health nor my time. No. Yeah, well, just thanks Peter Singer for banning me and all my friends off Twitter, so there isn't a digital record of all the stupid shit that I said on there. So, and now I have so much more free time. Although it's taken up a lot by my autistic Telegram chat, so I guess uh, I just like swapped heroin for meth, and now you're telling me to use methadone. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very love-hate relationship with racist social media, but it is nice. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, guys out there that um, follow the milieu of you know, all of our content uh, in the scene, I guess. And it is heartening to see that there's uh, so many people that are like us or whatever that exist in the world. But um, yeah, the internet is just like people just feel so entitled to just say whatever they want. They don't have like, if you're going to say something on the internet, like try and think about the audience and try and provide something to me. Like when I do things on the internet, I try to provide an experience to other people because um, I value other people's time and attention. I, I feel like if everyone had that attitude, it would be a far better experience than just like saying things for the sake of saying things. When I create content for me, I'm pretty, give me some back. Some people do that. Like the F, so I got there's some hilarious uh, effort posters in my chat that make me laugh. And it's one more people like that. It's, uh, it's I, I just appreciate content. content. But anyway, um, 
is there anything you want to say why before we end this no i'm good i'm good i just wanted to say thank you to borzoi for coming on and uh yeah you you can borzoi you can have the last word if you have any uh any parting thoughts for us oh that's uh Good. That's a good question. I, I, actually, I'll 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 end on a uh, on a quote from D. H. Lawrence that uh, people I I used at the start of my book, and uh, people have probably heard me read before, but it's always been near and dear to my heart. So if people are still kind of wondering like, what's my what's my what's my perspective on all this, like what how how do you sum this all up? Uh, it's this: we can't go back. We can't go back to the savages. Not a stride. We can be in sympathy with them. We can take a great curve in their direction onwards, but we cannot turn the current of our life backwards, back towards the warm, soft, the back towards their soft, warm twilight and uncreate mud. Not for a moment. If we do it for a moment, it makes us sick. Okay. Well, with that, thank you very much for coming on. We'll post um, all of Borzoi's links in the description and uh, all of the other stuff that we've talked about link wise will be there too. So thank you very much for coming on, and uh, we'll see you guys for the next one.